And this morning I'm going to invite you to take uh, your Bibles to the book of Revelation and uh, in chapter 3. We've been looking at uh, seven churches that Jesus wrote letters to, um, and uh, we're going to get into that. I want to just let you know about a couple things that are going on real quick um, that, that for some reason I kept forgetting, so I didn't tell Greg. Um, but uh, July, in July, just the way that things have worked out, uh, three of our missionaries are going to be with us in July. Uh, July 7th, which is two weeks from now, Ted Childs is going to be here. Uh, then the 14th, Greg and Asa Swenson are going to be here. And then the 28th, uh, the last Sunday, Jason Post is going to be here. Um, now, if you have not had a chance to meet um, any of these three men and their families, um, each of them is unique, each of them is different. Uh, Ted works uh, in, uh, in East Asia with college students, and, and uh, Greg and Asa uh, are, are uh, in Japan, and they're partnering with churches and working with children. And Jason is um, uh, in Ireland, um, and uh, from, he's from Texas, and he's in Ireland, uh, and that's just a, an interesting combination. But God is using all three of these families to do some great things, um, extended parts of our family. Uh, so we want to encourage you to be here for those weeks in July, um, to be able to be a, a part of, uh, of their giving us some updates about what's going on. Uh, in their ministries. So, so July is going to be a full week. Uh, yeah, full week. It's going to be a full month. Um, and, uh, and so we want to encourage you to be a part of that as well as the five-day clubs and everything that else is going on. Let's go ahead and open this morning. Um, and we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to do something different. I'm going to ask you to grab uh, the Bibles that are in the racks. If you have an, a new international version, you can use yours. Um, but I want to read this together. Um, so that we're all reading the same words, because I'd like to read the passage um, out loud together this morning. Um, this is Jesus' letter, and so I have to, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one pronunciation tip. Um, the name of the city that the church we're reading about, uh, the city is called Laodicea, not Laodicea. People pronounce it Laodicea, like that C in there is an S. Um, it's a K, Laodicea. Um, so when we get to that word, um, I'm going to say the K really, really loud. Um, so we make sure that we get that. It's Laodicea um, is the name of the city. So we're going to be reading, uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. And I want to encourage you to go ahead and read uh, out loud with me um, this letter. And I wanted you to do something else while we're doing that. Because you knew there was a reason, there was a subtle reason. If you've been paying attention uh, over the past few weeks as we've looked at these churches, um, you will notice that Jesus picks up themes from the other six letters and brings them back into this one. Um, and so I want you to kind of mentally be, be listening for things that sound familiar from the past few weeks. Um, that, that words that connect or ideas that connect, it's not exact words in some cases. It's just kind of an idea that carries across. But let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 14, let's go ahead and read to the end of the chapter out loud together. To the angel of the, Lord, of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, once again we come to Your Word. A written Word that reveals to us the living Word, Jesus Christ. We have gathered in His name. We have gathered for His glory. We have gathered in a place that has been dedicated to His service. And we ask, Lord, that You would be exalted, that Christ would be lifted up in our midst, and that we would truly bring uh, back to Him the bounty that He has poured out upon us in grace and love and blessing and truth. Help us to hear from Him through the Spirit. Lord, help us to see in Your Word more than just what we say today. We ask this in His precious and holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. The city of Laodicea is an interesting one. Um, we've, we've gone through a number of these cities in the province of Asia, and the first one that we were in was Ephesus, and Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was probably somewhere between you know, 250, 300,000 people, probably a little bit more, and it was the main city, it was the main place because it was the main port. Now, F, uh, Laodicea is on the other side of our loop. If you have been with us, we've talked about how this is kind of a loop that, that um, is made with these churches. Um, and we're going to put the map up again next week. But, uh, but the, uh, this church is kind of at the end of that loop. It's, it's the furthest from the ocean of the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and uh, 3. Now there's a, a very good reason why Laodicea is an important city. It sits on uh, what was called the Lycos uh, River, the River Lycos, which is a major water, uh, waterway uh, in Turkey, in Asia. And all of the people, that, all of the farmers that lived out in the Anatolian plain, they would bring all of their produce, all of their wool and all of that stuff, all of their bounty to Laodicea. And that city became the textile center uh, of the province of Asia. In many ways, it was a lot like Manchester, the city north of us, um, where the Amiskeg mills were, the largest textile mills in the world. 
Um, and they were, they were taking all of this raw material, all of this wool and linen and things, and they were manufacturing uh, fabrics and manufacturing cloth, and that was then sent to several of the other cities in Asia where it was dyed and cared for. So it was a, a, a trade point for all of this stuff coming from the east to get there, to be processed, and then to move on to the coast and, and from there out into the whole Roman world. Now, archaeologically, we don't know a whole lot about the city because the city was destroyed through a series of earthquakes. Um, and, and most of it is rubble now. Um, but it was built on a, a, a platform, a, a hill. It's about four or 500 feet high. Um, and as a result, there was no water. Um, so all the water in Laodicea had to be piped in. It had to be brought in through aqueducts. And recently, uh, digs around the region, um, the, the, the region in Turkey is called the Sili, um, and uh, in the region they have found the pipes that they used to move the water. And it's fascinating what they would do with this water. The water came out of the mountains, there were springs in the mountains, um, and the water would be piped through these aqueducts and through these pipes, and then what they would do is they would, they would build um, round pipes, and they would, they would be solid, and then there'd be holes, three or four holes in the pipe, and then a couple of feet down, there'd be another hole, another pipe, but it'd be rotated a little bit. And what it did was it created kind of a vortex in the water as it flowed from the mountain, and all of the sediment and stuff would kind of drift to the bottom, or, or it would be filtered out. Um, and they used sedimentation tanks and all kinds of stuff to filter this water to get it to the city. It was really uh, a fascinating thing. And then in the city, the water would be stored in cisterns down uh, underneath the city. These big, huge, uh, some of them were natural, some of them were artificially dug, but big storage tanks. Um, and then they had uh, fountains, a series of fountains. There were five that have been found so far in the site. They were called the Nymphium. Um, they were kind of sacred fountains dedicated to nymphs. And, and the idea was this water was then pumped up into the fountains, and that's where the water supply came from. So water was very important to Laodicea. Um, and a water supply, supply was very important. Um, but the issue was that it, Laodicea sits in a um, volcanic region. So there were two kinds of water in, in that region. Uh, there's hot water and there's cold water. Now, hot water comes out of volcanic springs, and, and it's good for various and assorted sundry things. You go to uh, the hot bath, and you sit in there, and it makes you feel good and, and all that stuff. And, of course, cold water is also useful for something. Cold water is useful for drinking and for bathing and all of those things. Um, but there was a, an issue with uh, water that was not one of those two. See, if, if, water, if water was... Um, not one of those two, then it was useless. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't like drinking water, the temperature of bath water. Um, have you ever had, you ever had, um, uh, you went to take a, a drink from a cup of tea or a cup of coffee that you thought was hot and um, encountered the fact that clearly somebody in the restaurant forgot to turn the burner on? So it wasn't cold. It wasn't iced coffee. It was just at that kind of disgusting level. Um, you know, it's like, ah, bleh, bleh. And, and this is, when we use this word uh, lukewarm that's in this passage, passage the, the Greek word is klieros, um, it's the idea of, of water that is not hot as in volcanic and expected to be that way and not cold, 
But it's in, the, the way that it's used in ancient Greek culture, it's in a place where you would find the, the cold water. So it's a, a lukewarm pool in a place where you would find something refreshing and cool. We're going to get back to that image in a minute. Um, but uh, I, we're, we're gonna, I'm just kind of planting that in your head. So um, anyway, back to the city of Laodicea. Laodicea, because of where it was, it was extremely wealthy. In fact, in AD 60, which was about one lifetime before this, about 30 years before the book was written, before Revelation was written, there was a massive earthquake um, and in the region, and it destroyed a number of the cities we've talked about. Um, Sardis, Philadelphia, both of those were, were uh, destroyed by the earthquake, and so was Laodicea. It was leveled. Um, and the emperor, Nero, um, he, he and the Senate offered to each of these cities that they would receive tax relief. They would be given 5, 10, or 15 years without taxes so that they could rebuild the city. And the Roman legions would come and rebuild the city for them. Um, The other cities in the region all accepted the help. They needed to. They were completely decimated. Laodicea absolutely refused any assistance. They rebuilt the city entirely by themselves using their own wealth and their own labor. They did not need Roman help. In fact, Laodicea was considered a free city. It was considered its own independent thing submitted to to the Roman rule, but it was not a part of the Roman provinces. It was its own group. It was its own people. Very wealthy. Um, Population probably about 100,000. and Probably all of those people were merchants. Most of those people were merchants um, who worked in the textile industry. Extremely, extremely wealthy city. And free city. That could be self-sufficient, could take care of itself, could do its own thing. And so Jesus writes this letter to this city up on this artificial platform. It has its own, has a special water supply, its own wealth and everything. And, and here's how he opens this. He says, this is what the Amen says. Now, those of you who know how churches that say Amen work, uh, where do you say Amen. Do you say amen at the beginning? Say it at the end, right? Now, you say it in various different ways. In New England, we say amen. In the South, they shout it. Um, they seem to, to accent amen. You know, they, got the, they get it good, you know, clear and phlegm. Uh, that's, they, they, really get into, they really get into it. But amen, it simply means let it be, all right? It is so. Let it be true. That's, that's the word. So amen goes at the end of something, right? Um, And yet here he goes and he starts at the beginning of his letter and he sticks amen there at the beginning. Well, he says, this is what the amen says, the faithful and true witness. Now, Now, in the version that we read, it says the ruler of God's creation. But the word there is actually the same word that appears in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning... Uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning is the Greek word archi, and archi is the word that appears here, the first of all creation. So you see what Jesus did at the very opening of this? He puts what should be at the end, at the beginning, and what should be at the beginning, at the end. So he's got things flipped over that should tell us something about what he's going to be saying to the church of Laodicea that they have things upside down. They're upside down. And so, so you see the beauty, the simplicity of this, of this letter um, and the way that it's written. And this is something they would have caught on to 
immediately. But he says about their works, he says, I know that your works are neither hot nor cold. They are clieros. They are lukewarm. And the, the condition of being lukewarm, like I mentioned before, was that it has the appearance of being cold. Uh, how many of you have ever been to a hot spring? Or, vol- you know, old faithful and all that stuff. What, what goes on around volcanic activity with water? What's in the air? Steam. You look around and go, ah, hot springs. It's not complicated. Um, and, and in this culture where there was so much volcanic activity, Anatolia, where Turkey, Asia is, there's, there's a lot of volcanoes. Um, and they're all inactive now. But, but there's, there's a lot of hot spring activity. Um, so all of this, they're all dormant now, I guess, um, not inactive. Uh, but there's a lot of hot springs. So if you come on water that doesn't, isn't steaming, isn't moving, the assumption is that it's clear water, it's clean water, it's cool water. It's going to be refreshing water. Um, and what would happen in Laodicea is sometimes these volcanic activity would kick up and the water that was in the fountains and stuff would, would not be cold, it would be lukewarm. And somebody would go to take a drink from the water thinking that, oh, cool, refreshing water. Oh, it'll be cool and clear. How many of you have ever had to drink mineral water? How many of you like drinking mineral water? Anybody? All right. Imagine warm Gatorade. All right. Um, and this is what you're going to encounter here. Um, it, it is, so you, you look at, or even better, this is quite possibly the most disgusting thing you could ever drink. Warm Mountain Dew. All right, um, you just imagine just imagine going in your car, it's been 100 degrees outside, and you grab that bottle, oh, it's going to be fantastic. It's going That's what he says. He says, you go, I went to go take a drink from what you were doing because it appeared to be cool and refreshing, and instead it was clieros, it was lukewarm. And so I, I vomited it out of my mouth. It was disgusting to me. Was revolting to me, um, because because and, and so many people take this and they they take this passage and they say, well, this this passage is all about either be good or bad, but don't be in between. That's not the point here, all right? That's not the point in this church. That point was made with several of the other churches, the the churches that were uh, ugly. We've talked about there are two good churches, two bad churches, and three ugly churches. This is one of the bad churches. He's not saying to them, oh, you're just mediocre. Just be hot or cold. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I took a drink thinking you were something, one thing and you're something else and it disgusts me. And here's what he finds so disgusting about them in verse 17. You say, I am rich and I'm getting richer. That's... Uh, by the way, in Greek, and you don't need to worry about it, but in Greek, that verse, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, those are actually the same word. I am rich is the noun, uh, I have possessions, and I am acquiring wealth is I am getting richer. That's, that's what's being said. I'm rich, I'm getting richer, and I don't need anything. Well, what was their heritage? 30 years before, they didn't need the help of the Roman Empire to rebuild themselves. They were self-sufficient. They were independent. I am rich. I'm getting richer. And we don't need anything else. But he says to them, but I say, you don't realize that you are wretched 
pitiful, poor, blind, naked. See, the reality is what was going on is he says, I see what you really are, but you think that you are something else. I see that you are wretched and poor and pitiful and blind and naked, but you think you're rich and getting richer. And there's a disconnect between your reality and true reality. I counsel to you, buy from me gold refined by fire that you might be rich and white garments that you may cover the shame of your nakedness. By the way, the shame of nakedness in the Bible, whenever you read that phrase, shame of nakedness, it ties sexual sin into that phrase. And hopefully you guys are all still kind of trying to connect the dots on some of these statements that he's made because there are two connections. There are connections to two cities in in those two statements right there. Two other letters to the churches. He says, solve to put on your eyes so you can see. In fact, last week we talked about a church where the, the call to the church was, look, behold, look, see. Then he says something interesting in verse 19, doesn't he? Those whom I love, I rebuke, discipline. See, so often we read these letters from from Jesus to these churches and we see a letter that has such negativity in it like this letter to the church of Laodicea and we go, oh God, was Jesus was angry. He's, he's furious with them. He wants to judge them. He wants to punish them. But He says to them, those who I love. So by definition, who is He talking to? He's talking to this church. He's talking to the church of Laodicea that he's identified and said, you've got issues, you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, but I love you. But I love you. He says, uh, so be earnest or be zealous and repent. This word repent has occurred numerous times through the letters uh, these seven letters, um, we have a tendency to put uh, a, a, an interesting spin on the term repent. Um, we either attach to it kind of a, a medieval Roman Catholic mentality of it, which repentance is, is penance, that we, we, we are guilty and so we have to do things to make things right. That is not what is meant by this word in the Bible. Um, in other situations, we put kind of this uh, post-Reformation attitude that repentance is a once-and-done thing. I see my sin and I turn away from it and now I'm all better. Um, that's, that's also out of balance. Both of these views are out of balance. Um, the, the, uh, the, the Roman historian Josephus, uh, who was a Jew... Um, tells the story of the wars of the Jews, and and at one point he, Flavius Josephus, who was this, he was a, a traitor. Um, there's no other way to describe him. He was a Jew who betrayed the Jews and became a servant of the Jews. At one point he goes to a Jewish leader, a Jewish general, um, who is fighting against the Romans, and he says to him, "Hey, repent and follow me." See, the idea of repentance is not that I'm guilty and so that I I have to do 
things to make it right. And it's also not a once and done, forget about it thing. It is a life change. It is a, 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 tran- a transfer of direction and perspective. It's not just, oh, I, now it's gone and I don't ever have to worry about it again and if I make a mistake again, I'll just do it again. It's also not living in guilt. It is a change of my direction. Now let me try to tie all of these images and ideas together and hear what God has to say, what Jesus has to say to the church. The church of Laodicea was living in a false reality in which they were rich and they needed nothing. Their problem was not false beliefs. Their problems was not bad doctrine. Their problem was not even unrighteousness, although those things probably existed in their church. Their problem was quite simply that they had created their own reality. They had created a world in which they were self-sufficient and did not need anything more. Someone once said that, that in most churches in America, in the Western world, if the Holy Spirit was there or not, no one would notice the difference. And the reality is that when we are rich, when we, we have a perception that our reality is provided and taken care of and we don't need anything more and we don't have to live on the edge and isn't it nice that we're complacent and comfortable, the reality is often that that is the moment, that, that sensation, that idea is the beginning, if not the continuation, of the downfall of our spiritual lives. When we believe that we have achieved all that there is to achieve and we are up on the plateau and we are safe and we are protected and there's no need for us to continue to work. There's no need for us to continue to grow. There's no need for us to continue to, be, to develop and mature. When we believe that we have reached that point, we are either beginning or already in a slide into penury, poverty, pitifulness, and wretchedness. And although we may have the appearance of being a nice, calm, cool pond of refreshment, in reality we are cleros, we are lukewarm, and the only thing that God can do with what we are is vomit it out. Because here is, here is the, the idea and I'm going to grab this idea of repentance and I want to give you a definition a two-part definition of repentance in the life of a believer repentance is the realization of my wretchedness repentance is the realization of my wretchedness because do we not develop this mentality to say we don't need anything. We're all set. We're okay. I can handle this. And when I say that, that doesn't mean pride. I'm not talking about pride and haughtiness. Oh, aren't we special? Aren't we blessed? Just simply saying, it's okay. I've got everything I need. I don't need anything more from God. There is never a time in the entire life of any believer here on earth at which they should say, I need nothing more from God. Whenever you find yourself in that situation, I'm sorry, but you're in sin. You're no longer depending on the Savior of your soul. 
But there's a second part to that. There's a realization of my wretchedness. But just just realizing that I'm wretched, all that makes me is a, is a depressed Calvinist. There's nothing wrong with John Calvin's teaching, but that's, you know, oh, the world is, it's the end of all things. The, the, the reason that we, we recognize our wretchedness is because in that realization, we recognize that we need Jesus as much as He knows we need Him. We need Jesus as much as He knows we need Him. In order for us to see that, we must be submitted to Him. When Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, um, you are blind, you are naked, what was their situation? They were rich. They were getting richer. Everything, every indication of their lives and their spiritual journey and their physical, physical possessions said, we are good. But Jesus said, no, you're not. You're wretched and you're pitiful and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked and you need to get things from me. You need me. But their perception, their view of things was, hey, everything is great, everything is okay. And you know the difference between that and a, and a vibrant living spiritual life, a, a, a journey with Jesus, is not just the, I'm so wretched, I'm so broken, I'm so bad. But the realization that if Jesus says I need Him, then I do. And whether I feel like I need Jesus or not, I do. Whether I feel like right now, I mean, some days, some days you walk around going, oh man, do I need Jesus. And then other days, he's kind of, he's well, Jesus, just walk in the back in case I need you. Um, but right now, I'm okay. But every day, every moment of my life, every second of a church's life, of a family's life, of a person's life, we need Jesus. And we need him the way that he says we need him. Not the way that we think he, we need Him. You know, it, it is so weird in, in Christianity. And, and this, is, this is one of those things that's baffled me and some of my friends, and we've had this conversation. It is so weird that we have created in Christianity a way to pray to God in which we never actually ask Him for things. We tell Him we need them. But it's so hard for us to ask we say to God, oh God, please do this. Well, is that a question? Is God, please do this, is that a question? That's in the imperative sense. That's an imperative mood sentence. God, please do this. We never say, um, and we, we need to learn how to say in our prayers um, to God and to Christ, Jesus, what would you have me to do? What do I need from you? How would you have me to address this situation? It's not, Jesus, give me the wisdom. It's, Jesus, what wisdom can I see from you? See, we, we have this mentality that we're not basing our relationships on, with Jesus with our need for Him, but rather our expectations for Him. And we, we have to relearn in, in Western Christianity, we have to relearn how to ask God for things. Because our perception, 
of reality. The Laodicean church's perception of reality was the problem. That was their problem. They thought they were one thing, and Jesus knew they were something else. And so he says to them, I love you. That's his response to that. I love you. That's why I'm rebuking you. That's why I'm chastening you. That's why I haven't given up on you. If you've heard the the church of Laodicea preached in church, odds are that you've heard it preached as, this is the end. This is the moment of final heresy when the whole church has been corrupted and tainted. And for 700 for 2,000 years, pastors have been standing up going, we're living in the Laodicean age. You know what? The reality is this thing, every one of the seven churches can exist at any moment in any congregation in any culture. And this one is one that their perception is wrong. They believe they're good, and they're not. They believe that they're all set, they don't need Jesus, and they do. And the only judge of whether they need Jesus or not is Jesus. And the only judge of whether we need Jesus or not in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our walk, is not whether we feel like we need Him, but that He says we need Him. And Jesus at no point says to any one of His disciples, you're good, you don't need anything else. At every moment, He says, I'm going to go away. Right? In John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, I think it is, He says, I'm going away. But don't worry, I'm not done with you. I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, I'm going to send Him down, because you're still going to need guidance. You still need my presence. You still need me. You're going to need me. I don't know. I mean, shouldn't our prayers every morning begin with, Jesus, can you tell me what I need from you today? Jesus, will you show me what I need from you today? I don't know what my needs are. So I can't give you my laundry list. I just know that you know the needs. I know you know what I need. So will you show it to me? Because the difference between a a church and a body and a family and a person committed to Jesus... You see this, this word that he uses here in verse, uh, verse 17 or verse 19, he says, so be earnest or, or be zealous. The old King James just transliterates the word, the Greek word zilatoa, um, the, the uh, zilatao, um, the, the, this idea of a heart commitment, a, a fervent commitment, a passion to his agenda and his mission. He says, in order for that to happen, We've got to repent. We've got to see this repentance happening. And what is repentance? It is knowing that I need Jesus as much as He says I need Him. Now let me ask you an honest question. And this is one for you to process. All on your own with Christ. But if you were to tally up your time in which you felt like you needed Him, and the time which you felt like you didn't need Him on an average day. If we're all honest, 
most of our time we don't think we need Jesus involved. Most of the time we say to Jesus, no, no, I got it. I'm in control. It's under control. I got this. I'm rich. I'm getting richer. I don't need your help. Funny. Within 30 years of uh, this letter being written, another earthquake hit Asia Minor uh, during the time of the Roman Emperor Septimus Severus. Is that 30 years? Somewhere in there. I think he's one of the good emperors. I'm not sure. Um, Maybe within 100 years. I'll broaden out. Doug will put it on the website, I'm sure. Um, But uh, during the reign of the Emperor Septimus Severus, I think it was closer to about 75 years, um, an earthquake hit Laodicea and leveled the whole thing. Turned it to rubble. Rubble so fine that we have no idea the extent of the ancient city. A city of 100,000 wiped from the face of the earth. Not wiped from the face of the earth like Pompeii was, was, where they could kind of reconstruct it and say this is where that was and that was where this is. Completely wiped to the earth. You know what's left of Laodicea after, uh, after about 100 years of reconstruction of the site? You know what's left? One street that they have had to piece together from bits and pieces scattered all over the site. I'm rich. I'm getting richer. I don't need any help for anything. Setting yourself up for an earthquake. You're setting yourself up for destruction. You're setting yourself up for a self-absorbed Christianity. Because the more you say to Jesus, I don't need you, the less you're going to believe that you need Him. And before too long, You're just going to live your faith apart from Him. I'm a good Christian. I do all the good Christian things. When was the last time Jesus was involved in any of it? I don't really need Him for this stuff. I'm okay. And so He says to us, and I I, I leave us with His words, I caution you, I counsel you, to buy from Me gold refined in the fire. Jesus says, come to me and I'll tell you what you need. Come to me and I will make you truly rich. Come to me and I will clothe your nakedness and your shame. Come to me and I will make you the overcomer. Just stay out there on your own and earthquakes are coming. And when you're going to need help, you're going to be so far away. There'll be no help for you. He says it because He loves them. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we know that You love us because You say You love us. And we know that we need You because You say that we need You. as the head of our church, Jesus. How can we know our need for You in a real, tangible way? What do we need from You today? And tomorrow and the day after? 
Jesus, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with me? That in my heart, I am not as committed, as zealous, as passionate about You as You would have me to be. Jesus, what is it about my reality that is false? That is lies that I have told myself that are lukewarm? That are disgusting to You? Jesus, where would You have us go? What would You have us do? How would You have us do it? Jesus, show us how we could be more and more dependent upon You that You might be revealed through us. That we might be changed every day more into Your likeness. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Son who does not give up on us, who loves us, who takes our wretchedness and our blindness and our poorness and our nakedness and offers to cover us and to bless us and to be rich. Father, thank You that Your love through Jesus never gives up on Your church that You founded in Him. We give You praise and glory this morning. In the name of our Savior, through the power of the Spirit. Amen.